0: Welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, all about improving the lives of animals with better policies and practices in government and business. Brought to you by Animal Wellness Action, where we believe helping animals helps us all. Here's your host, Joseph Grove.
1: Welcome to the show, everyone. Imagine you've got your typical middle school kid, whatever that may be these days, going through lunch line, breakfast line at school. So there's Johnny. Gets his rectangular pizza. You know, maybe another worker sprinkles some French fries on it. Maybe a green bean makes its way to the plate. And then at the end of that line, there it is that which all of us who have gone to public schools know for sure is going to be there. And that is this large industrial cooler full of milk. Now, here's a little something we haven't said yet about Johnny, and that is that Johnny. Like many young people, up to ninety percent of um, uh, people of Asian descent, sixty percent of people uh, who who are black or Native American, Johnny is lactose intolerant. Which means if he drinks that milk, bloating, pain, diarrhea, vomiting. Johnny does not want that milk, but here's the thing: he has to take it, and the reason he has to take it is because the National School Lunch Program will not pay for his lunch or his breakfast, unless he walks away with two cartons of milk. Now, type in all the numbers, and it's about 90 million cartons of milk every day. School is in session, is foisted upon our children, whether they want it or not. That's about 16.2 billion cartons of milk every school calendar year. That is, to say the least, a pretty sweet deal for Big Dairy. Even if every school child from Sea to Shining Sea hated milk and tossed it away, Uncle Sam would still buy all of that milk. It's bad for the kids. It's bad for taxpayers because of the $300 million in waste each year. And this is our interest in this. It makes a mockery of the suffering of dairy cows whose milk ends up straight down the drains and into the landfills. OK, today we're going to be talking about the Add Soy act add soy is a simple solution allow schools to offer soy milk alongside cow milk without penalizing them for it johnny goes through the lunch line gets to that industrial size cooler and has a choice cow milk soy milk school gets reimbursed either way well one won't be surprised that the dairy industry and its supporters inside government are opposed to this simple solution but another force against it maybe the common myths and misinformation about soy that have taken hold. I've really been surprised by the amount of email we get and the comments I get when I tell people that we are supporting the Add Soy Act. There's just a lot of misinformation about there. Soy is accused of emasculating boys and fueling cancerous growths in men and women. To help us debunk these myths uh, on the show today is Dr. Lakshman Mulpuri. He is chief executive of Plants Nourish and former president of the plant-based nutrition group. He also developed and implemented the first ever mandatory plant-based medical curriculum for first-year medical students at Wayne State. Dr. Mulpuri's work has been featured in Veg News, Forks Over Knives, and numerous newspapers and television stations. In fact, we just published a fact sheet he wrote that debunks some of the myths about soy. I invite you to find that at animalwellnessaction.org. Find our Dunking the Milk Mandate campaign page, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks, Ryan Savell, our producer, for doing that. Uh, Dr. Mulpuri, glad you're on the show with us.
2: Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate it. I'm very excited here to talk about, you know, some of the benefits that we can really see when we're offering soy milk on a larger scale to kids without strings attached. And importantly, the Add Soy Act I think provides kids with the ability to pick the milk that best suits them. And when we look at children of color in particular, I think this is a vital issue. Yeah, no, I, I concur.
1: And you know, there has been enough positive. PR or negative PR against dairy that I think the ground is somewhat softened for for a new type of nutritionally equivalent beverage to be introduced in schools. But what really surprises me, again, is just some of the myths about soy, right? So this, this document you produced for us, when I was looking over it and helping process it for the website, I thought it was the most cogent succinct, effective summary, rebuttal of these myths. And I'm hoping in this show, you'll just take us through them uh, one by one, okay? So like the first one, uh, Dr. Mulpuri, one of the myths that's out there is that soy affects reproductive hormones and by that we use the word affect as an affectation uh it, meaning to to mimic am i correct that soy mimics reproductive hormones is that of what we're talking about okay yeah
2: you know i think joseph that's a that's a great way to summarize it i think you know soy is a food as all this time i, I often like to say i mean it dates back to 1100 bc in asia um, and has been a consistent staple of many Asian diets and has only expanded in its popularity uh, across the across across the continent. In the U.S. here, we've only really started seeing soy in about the 1960s onwards to what's well, become a really large part of the American diet. I mean, I talk about in the fact sheet, but now the soy foods market is estimated at nearly $955 million. So Americans are eating more soy than they realize. And of course, it's important to note that a lot of that soy um, actually goes towards animal agriculture. We eat very little of what we produce here in the United States and and abroad. But nevertheless, I think it's something that because it's been around for so long, especially as it pertains as a alternative to dairy milk, soy has gained a a sort of reputation for having a host of problems, whether it's as it relates to bone health, whether it relates to reproductive hormones, especially in growing boys and girls, um, along with the fact that some people have said even that soy is a low quality protein. Um, Obviously, many of these couldn't be further from the truth. And I think the first big one, you know, for those of us who are a little young, like myself the word soy boy is a is a very common term um, that you hear actually in society it's oftentimes used to depict someone who may be more effeminate in nature Um, and you know it's it's been around for decades we've been talking about this topic for decades and i still hear people all the time whenever i'm speaking around the country or even with some of my patients there is a pervasive concern um especially for men regarding the feminization um, that they may experience um if they have soy milk in in medicine, we call this gynecomastia, which is uh, obviously breasts as a male, it's, it's expansion of the breast tissue or growth of the breast tissue from, from consumption of what they, what some people believe are estrogenic like compounds. Now, that's, that's what I hear, right? All the you time. Know,
1: soy will give men, you know, breasts. Uh, and, and in this document, you talk a little bit about phytoestrogen as opposed to, as opposed to the more natural uh, estrogen. What is the What's the difference between the two? So that when I'm out listening to my friends say, Joe, you're going to get bigger man boobs, you, you know, if you drink soy, I can say, look, it's not giving me estrogen, it's giving me phytoestrogen, right? What's the medical
2: science on that? That's that's a great question, Joseph. And I'm sure that won't be the last time you'll hear those questions. You know, I, I think when we talk about it, unfortunately, there's a similarity in naming convention here. So phytoestrogens are plant estrogen-like compounds. They resemble estrogen, but they're plant compounds. The actual term estrogen refers to steroid hormones that play a number of important roles, both in not just women, but in men as well. Now, when we look at phytoestrogens, I think there's a bit of a misnomer. Phytoestrogens aren't exclusively found in soy. They're found in all kinds of foods. You would be surprised just how many phytoestrogens and different subtypes of phytoestrogens we're eating on a daily basis. You find them in things um, like wine, tea, plenty of fruits and vegetables. They're actually a vital component in our diet. And the, one of the big reasons why soy products and foods that contain high amounts of antioxidants and phytonutrients have such a benefit uh, against protecting against all sorts of chronic diseases, uh, cancers. And in this case, phytonutrients are a significant component of, of soy's benefits. And we really need to talk about how Americans can eat more phytoestrogens and not less. All right. So phytoestrogen, good
1: not to be confused with estrogen because no growing young man or whoever right whoever doesn't want estrogen doesn't want estrogen so all right that's great all right now contrast that with dairy because uh, i know that there are significant amounts of estrogen and progesterone am i saying that correctly along with the hormones yeah okay so what what does dairy have going against it in this issue
2: yeah there is some research that exists. Um, obviously, you know there always require we always require more research. I'll I'll never say that we've reached the zenith of all knowledge. There's always more to be learned. But there are some evidence there is some evidence. And for those of you who are interested, please read the soy fact sheet. I have some 32 references um, on this topic alone in that fact sheet. But there is some evidence that obviously, where do we get milk from? It tends to be from pregnant cows for the most part. In any pregnant animal, uh, obviously ourselves as well. Estrogen and progesterone are vital hormones uh, for the development. Of the baby, as well as maintains of health for the for the for the female in question, and if we look at cows, it's very likely um, that estrogen and progesterone are found within uh, dairy milk, and it's natural. You wouldn't expect otherwise. And even if we're able to filter out a, a good portion of it, there's still going to be uh, components left over, just given how ubiquitous this is in the formula. The other big thing that we're not talking about enough, actually, is IGF one. We're talking about growth hormones here, otherwise known as Insulin Growth Factor one. Why is this important? Well, obviously it's good to grow. That milk that a lot of our kids are consuming, and obviously many of us continue to consume in adulthood, is designed to take a very small being to a very large cow. And that requires significant growth apparatuses and to be exposed to a host of components that will allow that tiny calf to get to a very large, healthy cow. And in our case, it's good for growth. Um, It definitely is, and and nobody will deny that. Milk is an important part of, of most mammals' development. But at a certain point, if we continue having these high IGF levels in our body, it can wreak havoc. It can lead to all sorts of things called oxidative damage in the body, which has been linked, increased forms of cancer because if we're promoting growth. You know, not all cells should be, should be continuing to grow. So, you know, we really have to look at what's in what, what's in the milk that we're drinking, both plant and dairy. And, and I promise you, you're not going to find any sort of steroid hormone um, in plant milk especially in our case what we're talking about here is soy milk
1: all right very good myth number two in your document relates quite a bit to this uh but it's distinct to the extent it says it impacts fertility potentially that's one of the myths soy negatively impacts fertility how, how do some of these rumors even get get started and what's the truth on this one
2: i think when we talk again about this feminization it again relates to this misconception on what is a phytoestrogen and what is an estrogen, right? And when we look at males, oftentimes there is a belief that, you know, there's all this estrogen in our diets and it's reducing our testosterone and causing all kinds of problems. Well, all the investigations that exist, there's more than a few, I, I think I listed three or four at least in there, have found that there was no correlation between soy intake and male fertility. This includes sperm concentration and motility, as well as reproductive hormones such as testosterone. But the other really big thing that we need to be concerned about, especially in individuals um, that are getting to their 40s and 50s and onwards, is... Um, Men have rates of prostate cancer in America that are incredibly high, especially among communities of color. And because of that, we oftentimes need to find ways to limit the amount of dangerous molecules that these people are being exposed to. And in those who have lower prostate cancer, they've actually found about a 26% lower risk among men who are consuming regular amounts of soy. Now, when we talk about dairy, Joseph, because I can already tell you're about to ask that question, dairy is actually the opposite. Um, We've actually found a number of large trials. I mean, we're talking about some of the largest trials that are very well known in the United States. The Physicians Health Study is one that I cited in the document. These trials have found significantly higher rates of prostate cancer among individuals who are consuming two and a half servings of dairy uh, minimum. And the more milk you drink, it tends to be correlated with a higher risk. And whole milk intake in particular um, has been associated with an increased risk of progression to a fatal outcome. By what I mean by fatal outcome is dying from, from the disease. So we need to really look at building this foundation for kids so as they get older, they might not be exposed to all these Beverages and and molecules and components that can produce a negative reaction and unfortunately lead to sorts of diseases that many of us are all too familiar with here in the United States. Uh,
1: Doctor Melpurry, is there something about soy that is prostate cancer inhibiting, or is it merely that those twenty six percent people didn't have dairy? Because I have a, like a, a lot, I drink a lot of almond milk. I mean, of that's course. my my beverage of choice. Uh, would it have potentially the same uh, prostate cancer inhibiting
2: qualities? Here's the problem with studying diet, Joseph. The problem is that I think we really wanna focus on individual components and how it pertains to our overall dietary health. And that can sometimes be difficult to do. And it can be difficult because people eat all sorts of things. Um, It's very difficult to study and track. We use these things called food frequency questionnaires, FFQs to get a good understanding of what people have been eating over a month, a two month period, even a year period and longer, but it's not always accurate. So it can be difficult to say, this food in particular is going to be the one food, the magic bullet that will prevent all disease, which is why, obviously, I know AMWA and the Center for Humane Economy, as well as myself, promote the notion of having a balanced diet chock full of fruits and vegetables and minimal and animal products. Now, as it pertains to soy, soy and dairy products, there is possibly an opportunity cost to be had. For those who are having more soy, they may have less dairy. And remember, we talked about that IGF-1 connection, that insulin growth factor connection. When we're looking at dairy in particular, we're talking about growth of cells that shouldn't be growing. That's what we kind of call cancer. And in this event, by having things that have high amounts of phytonutrients, antioxidants, B vitamins, magnesium, calcium, and a host of other beneficial components, having that in your life as a mainstay can provide benefits that... Perhaps those who are not consuming as much of soy or consuming more dairy might be at a disadvantage. So to answer your question, um, yes, but also no. There is no cure-all. There is no panacea. Um, What we want to do in kids, adults across the country, and this is what public health is, minimize risk as much as possible. And especially in someone like you who leads a healthy life, and I know for the most part, eats, <laughs> eats well, <laughs> Dr. Mapuri. All right, uh, all right. Now I'm reminded. Said no one ever. Said no one, ever. you know, joseph. You've got the joviality and the energy of a 25-year-old, so would it surprise me one bit? Oh well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. <laughs> so, but you know, as it, you were of course, but you know, it's it's really about stuffing our diets with as much positive things as we can, as much fruits, veggies, and remember whole foods, whole foods is a really big part of that. We don't just say to eat a plant-based diet, we say to eat a whole food plant-based diet because that's what the evidence shows. And, you know, obviously uh, as, as doctors and, and, and in our space, as well as, as advocates, we're just trying to ensure that people have access to all the knowledge and all the choices necessary to ensure that they're able to lead a healthy life and one filled with love um, and time with family. You
1: know, I know we're ranging all over the place, but, but it's very interesting what you said about whole foods, because I've tried some of these, you know, impossible meats and things like that. And there are, are a couple of vegan places as is, I'm sure, or everywhere, but in, in Louisville, where I live. And, you know, it's like vegan mac and cheese or right. vegan. Yeah. You know, and I tell you, I eat this stuff. Mm. It, it feels to me that it is so processed. Right. And I know that after I eat it, I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes to what you say that just because it's plant based, right, doesn't mean any more, especially with all of these, some
2: of these vegan alternatives, right, of course, so that you're getting health food, right, right, right. And you know, I'm only human Joseph, oils are for me what Diet Coke is for you. So <laughs> I get it, I get it completely. And, you know, we say in moderation, and, you know, Unfortunately, things are never that simple. And moderation in the United States looks a whole lot different than moderation in Europe and moderation in places like the Blue Zones, um, which for those of you who don't know, I'd highly recommend reading about Blue Zones and both the social, the nutritional, um, and familial components of those communities and why it means that they get to live so long and have such fulfilled lives free of chronic disease. But you're you're completely right you know we got to do everything we can to ensure that whole foods are readily accessible and allow people to not only make a decision to change but ensure that it's that much easier for them to make that change when they're ready
1: what we do to our people when we make whole foods inaccessible mm. uh, inadvertently so no one's right. i think trying to keep it from them of course right. uh, when we make it super easy to get fast food it's no wonder we're, right. we're so obese i live in downtown louisville and mm-hmm. yeah, there's 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 you know in the urban area you know of course the, your urban food deserts again not unique to here but what are these people supposed to do right you know and, right. and i ask that rhetorically because that's really a whole four or five shows nice, all on too. its own but but the emphasis is is not only on plants but but whole whole food whole foods plants and things like that so.
2: entirely entirely joseph and you bring up some very good points that many of us who have been community advocates, particularly in marginalized populations and in inner cities have just find it maddening sometimes just how few avenues people have to turn to when they need support, whether it's nutritionally, whether it's mentally, whether it's financially. And when it comes to nutrition, we need to do better about allowing individuals or enabling and empowering individuals to make healthier choices. And I keep hammering that not just because I think if I speak into the ether, it'll come true, but because we need to look at where our subsidies are going. And in this case, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars are being wasted on a product that many kids not only don't enjoy, but are physically unable to tolerate that can prevent them from being active children in school, learning. And I tell you, Kids are complicated. Everybody knows us. Kids are complicated. You know, I, I did a lot of advocacy work in, you know, on the west side of Detroit, and um, this I helped manage this nonprofit called Lantina's Village. And one of the big things we were pushing was the lead exposure that these kids were experiencing. And this was because of high amounts of demolitions in Detroit. And for those of you who don't know, cities like Detroit and Baltimore have a lot of older houses with lead paint. And this can be particularly problematic when we knock these homes down and we don't use proper suppression techniques to ensure that these molecules aren't spreading to kids. And I bring this up because in these children, those who are exposed to lead exhibit personality characteristics that some may consider be problematic in the classroom. They might be less engaged. They might engage in more criminal activity. They might feel less involved in their school curriculum, and as a result, may be considered bad students who are lost causes. But in reality, their environment failed them in the first place. And I say the same thing, not to equate lead poisoning with with lactose intolerance, but there are all these factors in children that may prevent them from being able to engage in, in, in class and, and, and be a young kid. And lactose intolerance is, is a significant one. I know for me personally, um, I suffered a lot as a young kid from continuing to eat large amounts of lactose when my body didn't want it. And you know, it took me down a path where there was thoughts that I maybe had Crohn disease, I maybe had all sorts of colon conditions, and you know, as I got older and I recognized that I wanted to go to a plant-based lifestyle. A plant-based lifestyle, a lot of those, a lot of those problems resolve themselves. So, again, it's going back to ensuring that we're being sensitive to the needs of, of children, both uh, culturally uh, as well as demographically, and also ensuring that you know we are empowering individuals through subsidization, through legislative policy, and through on-the-ground community advocacy to allow people to overcome these barriers of decision fatigue that so many encounter across the United States.
1: All right, let's put a pin in that, Dr. Mulpuri. We'll come back in a second with your final two myths, debunking those. Uh, But first, we want to take care of a little podcast business.
0: Animal wellness action depends on people like you to complete our work. Our recent victories to protect big cats, spare beagles from pharmaceutical tests, and convince Nike to stop killing kangaroos for shoes would not have happened without the financial support of our donors. Become one today at any amount. Visit AnimalWellnessAction.org forward slash donate to join our fight against animal cruelty of all kinds. That's AnimalWellnessAction.org forward slash donate.
1: Okay, thanks for that. Now we're back with Dr. Mulpuri. Myth number three I want you to address, please, sir, is soy
2: causes breast cancer. How did that come about? And what's the truth? Wow. You know, this one is huge, uh, Joseph. And it sometimes really hurts me when I hear um, advice being given to individuals who may be at a little of a higher risk of breast cancer, women in general to avoid soy. We couldn't be further from the truth. And I say this with dozens of studies at my back supporting the notion that consumption of soy is one of the most important dietary components to preventing breast cancer development in women. Um, This is whether you're at a higher risk or whether you're at a normal risk. The reason is phytoestrogens are vital. Um, And one of the things I didn't touch upon earlier um, is that phytoestrogens are an interesting molecule. Because they act differently um, in certain circumstances. For those who, you know, sometimes they mimic estrogen um, in ways that are beneficial and at low doses that provide a beneficial effect. And in those who have high estrogenic uh, concerns, it actually tampers it down and it modulates. Um, itself and allows individuals who you know, may be at a higher risk to uh, maybe steer clear because of the benefits, the phytoestrogens in particular. You asked me about prostate cancer earlier, but soy is most definitely linked to uh, lower rates of breast cancer because of what soy is as a component and because of its individual nutrient profile. And you don't have to look far You just got to look at Asia and look at the levels of breast cancer, you know, 30, 40 years ago, maybe even sooner. And you can track the progressive increase in breast cancer among these populations as they move to areas with heavily Western diets and away from areas that may consume as much soy. And large, large trials have found that those having just one cup of soy milk a day, or I guess the equivalent is half a cup of tofu, have a 30% reduced risk of developing breast cancer compared to those who eat little or no soy. And this benefit was found in another large trial, what we call a meta-analysis, to find this protective effect for both premenopausal and postmenopausal breast cancers. Soy foods are huge, and they should continue to be emphasized in all walks of life, especially for women in their preteen and teen years, as well as they get older. It's Wonderful in what it's able to do, and the data supports that. Fascinating. So so really, not only is it not a, a villainous food, it's a superfood. I try to stay away from superfood because, again, I think we overemphasize certain things as being these magic bullets, but soy is uniquely positioned to be a game-changer. Um, for those, uh, for, for many women across the country and around the world, and as long as you recognize the benefits it has and are able to dispel some of these myths, uh, I think it'll make all the difference.
1: Now let's let's move on to the last one, which is that soy is an incomplete protein. So I want to say this first: that you know, if we're looking at options in schools, nut-based milks are not an option because of the prevalence of nut allergies right so even if let's say my favorite almond milk were Mm -hmm. deemed by uh i forget what which agency made this determination you'll know uh, dr malpuri but but soy has been deemed nutritionally equivalent even if almond milk were for example though it couldn't be because of the nut allergy right? right so when so when the government says that soy is nutritionally equivalent that that to me is pretty meaningful, especially since the government is the one buying all this, this milk from dairy. Right. So what do, what's the
2: myth mean when it says it's an incomplete
1: protein? And what's the truth?
2: Some of these myths arose from feeding rats different types of proteins, both animal proteins and plant proteins. And I think they found that rats didn't thrive on plant proteins. Um, why that's particularly relevant, I don't know. We're not rats. Um, This isn't to say that animal studies in the past haven't held promise for uh, research, but, you know, overall, that's a separate topic for for a different day. But when we talk about incomplete proteins, there is a myth that you need to have certain proteins, certain amino acids from foods, and they need to be complementary. For example, rice and beans rice may contain certain amino acids, beans may contain certain amino acids, and together they form a complete protein. And none of you can see me, but I'm using air quotes for complete protein because this was, this was dispelled in 1994. I mean, man, we have been talking about incomplete proteins for so many decades, and it is baffling to me because there is no evidence to suggest um, that any plant protein is an incomplete protein. And the reason is our body possesses a natural reservoir of free amino acids and a very, very well-developed protein recycling system to ensure that everything that we need is being synthesized. And how do I know this beyond just the science, for those of you who aren't as geeky and nerdy as I am about these, you know, minutiae that comes with nutritional science and and, and and the human body, you find me someone in the hospital in the United States or in most Western countries that has protein deficiency without some underlying chronic disease. You won't, it's incredibly rare. And the reason it's rare is because the minimum that we ask are, ask Americans to eat, and this is what's called the recommended daily allowance, which are guidelines set for how much an individual should be eating to not only survive, but thrive. The recommended daily allowance is 45 grams uh for men and I think 35 grams for females. I might be off by 10 grams there um, in either direction. I apologize. But that number that I just said is actually adjusted two standard deviations up. So it's to be safe. Um, you know, and so soy milk, regardless, um, contains all of the proteins you need. All of the amino acids that you will ever need are in soy milk. It is actually one of the highest quality proteins we have um, in in, in plants, if we're going to go down that route of completeness of amino acids. And this is very similar to dairy products. So yeah, referring to what you were saying, Joseph, about federally mandated nutritional guidelines, soy milk has a, not only the right quantity, but they also have the right quality of protein as it pertains to federally mandated guidelines. But, you know, if we look at the dietary guidelines for Americans from 2020 to 2025, Five, they assert that soy products are a critical part of, of a daily healthy diet. And, and obviously we have dozens and dozens of studies to, to back that up, but we focus so heavily on protein and we're not focusing on other things we need to, which is 97% of all plant-based eaters get more than enough protein, but over 90% of Americans don't meet their minimum fiber requirement, which is Tragic because a lot of chronic disease that we see in the United States can be prevented or at least reduced with just more fiber in our diet. So, I want to remind people that they can go to
1: animalwellnessaction.org. We have a drop down of campaigns. This is called the Dunking the Milk Mandate campaign page. You can read more about our work to have the Add Soy Act passed. And again, you know, my interest primarily. Notwithstanding, of course, my desire that everyone eat, you know, healthy diets and and prosper physically, but my interest, of course, in this relative to to the podcast is that these the dairy cows, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so these these poor dairy cows they they go through a lot, producing twenty six thousand pounds, you know, of milk a year. Uh, when just a few years ago, that number was much less. They live very short lives. Uh, once they are spent as a dairy cow, they are uh, shuffled off for slaughter, for low-grade beef products, uh, and of course, you know, any, any parent can understand the trauma of giving birth to a youngling and having that youngling taken off. I'm referring, to, of course, you know, to, to, to the calves, uh, so it, it's just bloody awful so far as dairy cows go. So that we are taking so many millions of gallons of their product and just pouring it down the drain because the kids can't drink it. It just seems to me to be absolutely crazy, right, that we would take the suffering of these cows and just and just waste it like that. So so if we get the Ad Soy Act passed, uh, you know, fewer students at these schools will will get dairy milk. That takes some of the pressure off the dairy industry in terms of production, the thinking goes, and, and cows benefit. And of course, the animal wellness podcast, that's our primary uh, angle on, on all of that. Dr. Mulpuri, is there anything I haven't asked uh, that, that you would like to talk about relative to this topic, uh, or uh, any final words otherwise?
2: America was fundamentally built on the notion that freedom of choice is one that we all should have access to. And what soy does is provide all Americans, regardless of their background, the opportunity to choose a product that is best suited to them. We aren't looking to remove dairy milk um, from every school in the country. um, And we're looking primarily to ensure that children have equal access to a product that is highly demanded in the United States and abroad. And that all children um, should have the access to. I'm glad you brought up that point because I don't want all our organization to
1: be perceived as being anti-milk, right? right. I right. mean, clearly people uh, who are, are very savvy like you, Dasi Bosch, one of our partners, Dr. Mills, who's been on the show uh, and is a very vocal you know, uh, proponent of, of soy, uh, you know, great, so be it. But you know, I got to tell you, every now and then, when I'm when I'm at Steak and Shake, you know, I'll I'll have a milkshake. You know, I right. mean, I I consume a little dairy, not much. Mm-hmm. So this is not an anti dairy movement. It's a let's add soy so that so that the poor kids who just want something good to drink with lunch don't have to drink something that makes them sick, in which they're just going to throw in the garbage can. There you go.
2: A hundred percent. We're we're pro plants. And we don't want any child, and those of you listening uh, hopefully are aware of just how prevalent child hunger is across the United States. And for many kids, this will be the only meal they're able to have that day. We don't want to even remove a small component of that. We merely just want kids to have access to something instead of throwing out that milk right? I want them to have a nutritionally equivalent beverage, which obviously is soy milk in this case. I want kids to have access to that soy milk so that they're able to get all the nutrients they need for that day and they don't have to feel like they're missing out
0: on something. Thank you for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and follow Animal Wellness Action on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. To stay current with all of our news and information and to take action to help animals, sign up at animalwellnessaction.org. Until next time, remember that helping animals helps us all.